Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. John W. Wood is a former global chairman of Republicans Abroad and chairman of the Trilateral Group in London. He's my second guest in a three-part miniseries on the state of America today. Hello, everyone. If you follow my interviews closely, you'll know that I'm now presenting a McKay interview miniseries in three parts on America. This is the second part. The basis of the series is my curiosity about America, especially today's America. But because I'm no expert, I've called on the help of three longtime knowledgeable American friends of quite different professional experiences to help me examine the state of their country as they see it through their own eyes. Two are American expatriates, one in Geneva, and that was Dr. Danny Warner, my previous guest, the other in London, my guest today, and the one to follow, an American who lives in the USA. What they have in common is they're all friends of mine, the integrity of whose opinions I trust, and all are Americans of a similar generation, my generation. They've been around a long time and can take the really long view. As I said last time, and speaking as a non-American, Many of us admire the United States greatly, warts and all. But in recent times, the country seems to many of us who watch from a distance to have faltered, stumbled, a country not really at peace with itself, vast, energetic, and talented, though it undoubtedly is. Because the health of the globe's only superpower is important to the world, especially what we in the West call the free world, it is to be hoped and desired that America pulls itself together and sooner rather than later. The new president, Joe Biden, has gone on record already as saying America is back. And so with the help of my guest today, and in fact all my guests, we're going to look at where America is now and how it got there. I mean the end of the Trump era and the beginning of Biden's, why the turmoil and rancor across the land culminated in the defeat of Trump on the 4th of November, and was and still is seething in that country that caused that eruption, why so many millions of Americans believed last November's election was stolen, to use the word of the man who lost, and whether or not America's two-party system, Republican and Democrat, is dead, or more precisely, is the Republican Party of the Trump era moribund. My guest today is more than qualified to answer all these questions, especially the final one. And I say that because he was, for eight years, global chairman of Republicans Abroad, the official arm of the Republican Party abroad, stepping down at the time of George W. Bush's inauguration in 2001. I'm delighted he's accepted my invitation today, as we've been friends for more than 30 years, and I know that he does not do interviews often, if at all. Now, most of you listening will probably not have heard of him, although I know some of you tuning in will know him well. He is an international businessman with many fascinating facets and with an acute strategic and thoughtful political sense Without telling you too much about him, at the outset, I can mention that he's already told me that even though he is a Republican, he voted three times, not so long ago, for Democratic candidates to the White House. John W. Wood is based in London, where he's lived for many years, visits the USA often, and joins me via Zoom. Hello, John. Welcome to the McKay interview. Good morning, Michael. It's always a pleasure talking to you. It's good to see you, John. Uh, John, please allow me to tell the listeners a little bit more about you. And after that, as our conversation progresses, they will see why I thought your opinions 
your long view would be invaluable to this mini series. You're chairman of the trilateral group, a holding company involved in consulting, economic development, policy analysis, and communication strategy. Your chairman, co-founder together with Dr. Evgeny Belikov, the distinguished Russian nuclear physicist of the Institute for Applied Science, a nonprofit East-West organization dedicated to the peaceful application of nuclear, chemical, and biological science. Your director of Middle East Consultants and the Windsor Energy Group, former director of Oxford Analytica, and a former advisor to the Undersecretary for the International Security and Nonproliferation at the U.S. Department of State. John, let's start with the same first question that I put to Danny Warner a few weeks ago, the context. Context is an overworked word these days, but you and I are of the same generation, though you're a little bit older than me, and remember well the upheaval in the 1960s and the early 70s. Looking back, John, those were major events, the Vietnam War, race riots in America's major cities, civil rights, student unrest on the university campuses, and even deaths on campuses, the political assassination of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, Watergate scandal, the resignation of President Richard Nixon. John, to what extent do they provide context as to where America is today, or do we need to go back even further in history to understand? Just cast some light on that, please. Michael, I agree with you. Context is everything, and the events that you cite are well worth keeping in mind. America, being an entire continent and the third largest uh, population in the world, is always an unruly, um, dynamic, and sometimes unsettling place. And the incidents you cite, the uh, riots during the Vietnam War, the, the assassinations, stirred the country up greatly, um, in some ways even more than what we're seeing now. But it is important to realize the country does go through these periodic um, unsettling events. Generally, afterwards, things have become better as a result of them. But look, John, I don't want to spend too much time looking back nor dissecting the Donald Trump epoch in the White House, but he's a unique political phenomenon, at least in modern times. We cannot ignore that. How would you describe America's condition leading up to and immediately after the presidential election and then during that period between um, early November and the presidential inauguration on the 20th of January, and then in particular on that unforgettable 6th of January when the armed mob raided the Capitol building. Could I call that a pivotal day? Would that be an exaggeration? Would you call it, John, a pivotal day? Many have called it an insurrection, but I'm curious to know how you see it, and what your analysis of what went on on that day. But John, before you deal with that, I, 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 Please tell me as near as possible, because you are uh, dispassionate and insightful in your views about Trump's presidency, why so many people voted for him and believe in him. And you know the Republican Party. You know how that machine works. How did Trump get elected in the first place back in 2016? A lot of people voted for him. And the Republicans did numerically quite well last November, though not well enough to win. So how do you see that in the general picture, John? Well, again, uh, your point about context is a useful perspective. Trump definitely was a revolutionary political figure um, in that he came from outside the political system, took over a political party, and, and won a presidential election. But the background is that the population of the United States had been deeply unsettled ever since the financial crash, when so many lost their homes, so many savings were wiped out, 
and basically the economy lost $17 trillion worth of value. This caused tremendous unrest as people looked and saw that the people who were involved in the financial institutions, et cetera, got bailed out, but they didn't get bailed out. And my sense is that what was going on after that, people became more acute in their looking at the political system in Washington. And they were looking for change. First, they went and picked a uh, four-year senator, four senator from Chicago who was black. And he, he clearly was not part of the Washington swamp. He'd only been in the town for four years. Secondly, he was only one of two senators to vote against the um, Iraq war. So he stood out as not being a member of the swamp. So they elected him and had him for eight years. His terms were then over. There was work still to be done. And the people who were running um, for the nomination at that time, all were members of the political class. So from outside comes this energetic force, in many senses a revolutionary force. And he had, I mean, Trump, as we all know, is a very strange guy in that he's abrasive and many ways simple-minded, but he has extraordinary instincts. And at the time, Henry Kissinger, who's a wise advisor, said every now and then in a nation's history, a seminal figure comes along who challenges all the traditional orthodoxies, often caused great turmoil, but after he's gone, the entire vision of what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate and what needed to be done has been challenged and changed. And to a degree, I think that's what happened with Trump. He spotted, he had an instinct for the fact that in the heartlands of America, people were out of jobs, were not doing well. On the coasts, people were doing well. And, and, the, and these people in the main had been ignored by the political classes. They had other important things to do. Trump tapped something with them. I mean, if you remember the last words of his inauguration, he said, hear these words, you will never be ever be forgotten again. And I think that uh, was, was a strong chord with people. And I think that's what, in, in a sense, propelled him into the White House. If you remember, he spent a third less than his opponent in that election. He had, he essentially financed himself. So he's an outsider and he shouldn't have won. And he did win, but because he had this instinct for where people were suddenly turning against the political classes in Washington. And he catalyzed that view. John, let me just pick you up on one point there, John. He was already well known from what I understand, simply because of his TV career. So in that yes. respect, in that respect, he had a head start simply through television as a celebrity, whereas uh, let's say Hillary Clinton was well known, but she certainly wasn't a celebrity. No, I, I completely agree. And, but he was a celebrity from outside the system. Yeah. And to a degree, uh, he revolutionized the presidency because he became sort of a performance president, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, so but I just want to examine that a bit more carefully because you know the party so well. You led Republicans abroad from your bases in London and Washington, D.C. from 1992 until the beginning of 2001. So you know your party well. What, in your opinion, based on what you just said to me, changed in the party 
that was once led by Nixon, then Reagan, then the two Bushes, who end up being led by Donald Trump. And here's the key thing from my point of view. Can, can the party survive him or survive without him? Or is Trump's hold over the Republican Party too strong? Describe the state of the Republican Party today and what you think will happen between now and let's say the congressional elections in 2022. And finally, the long question, please tell me what those who wish to inherit Trump's mantle in four years time have actually been bequeathed. How many hours do we have? <laughs> 25 well, minutes, John. <laughs> first, on the, on the state of the party. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's important that we keep in mind the fact that American political parties in the main aren't like European political parties, for example, because they are loose collections. They're very broad church. And every four years, somebody takes over that church and knits the pieces together. So they're very untidy. I mean, at one time, the American humorist Will Rogers said, I belong to no organized political party. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> well, both American political parties are rather like that. So they survive endlessly because they sit largely in the middle, um, one on the left and one on the right. And every four years they renew themselves in some way. So I think the Republican Party is not in bad shape. It has a majority of uh, governorships in the nation. It nearly took back control of the House in this last election, which stunned everybody, I think even the party. It, it held on to the Senate, although, it, and it was supposed to lose six Senate seats. So in many senses at the state levels and the local levels, it's actually doing quite well. And that's where the grassroots politics are. So, it, you know, it, it it has received a lot of damage in many ways because of the Trump's revolutionary nature, his abrasive um, personality. But, you know, it's not called the grand old party for nothing. It will still be there and it will reform. Thanks, John. My guest today is John Wood, global chairman of Republicans Abroad for eight years in the 1990s up to 2001 and chairman of the trilateral group in London. John, and let's turn to something slightly different. Is the American dream, in your opinion, out of reach for a growing number? And is that growing number increasingly an underclass of poor whites who resent competition from migrants for jobs and housing? And is it not the case that the underclass in America were mainly once black or brown, but are now increasingly white or even pink? Again, a very sophisticated question. First, I don't think the American dream is, is out of touch of people. It's never been in touch for everybody, but it has been a, a country because it is so big and so dynamic where people feel that given a reasonable chance, they can uh, get ahead. In the last 20 years, there's been, has been created a huge disparity in wealth between the uber rich, again, normally on the coast and the heartlands of America where people have been struggling but if, if it's an interesting perspective to look at the fact that at the moment, there are 56 million immigrant Americans. People have immigrated to America and become Americans. That's nearly a quarter of the total population of the country. And on an average year, and last year was not an average year, about one and a half million immigrants, legal immigrants, come to the country. Legal immigrants, did you say? Legal, legal, legal immigrants. Yeah, yeah. 
That's every single year. If you remember, yeah. it took one million immigrants coming to Europe to totally upset the uh, European community when, yeah. when Merkel said, come. So the country is used to ingesting huge numbers of disparate people and integrating them. Now, there's, there is definitely an underclass and there is definitely real and grinding poverty. And your point about it, the, the foci of, of that poverty is really interesting because there are more suicides now between, uh, amongst um, unemployed whites than there are of any other uh, uh, part of the population. A very interesting study done by Dr. Carol Graham at the Brookings Institute is looking at these matters. The, the um, underclass in the, in the cities, um, black and Latino is, is and has always been a real problem, which has never been resolved. But I would argue that in the main, things are far better now on most of those fronts than they were 20 years ago. And, and, and that's not to be complacent because there is a lot of privation. There is a lot of unhappiness. And, and in the main, the, the Washington consensus has never properly dealt with these matters. So let me ask you this then, John. Would you agree with me that racism still infects many parts of American society today, that America or parts of America never really came to terms or come to terms with this awful history of slavery and oppression, and yet and the variety of racial mixture and skin colors I observed on TV across America in support of the Black Lives Matter marches triggered, triggered by the police killing of George Floyd, as you know, and here in a way I argue against my own question seem to indicate that maybe, just maybe, the public sentiment and desire for change is different this time, better and more widespread. What's your impression about the present state of race relations in the USA? And by the way, Trump himself was frequently described by his enemies as a racist president. I know you have some slightly different perspectives on the man, so please tell me. Well, uh, certainly matters of race are, are unresolved in America. In, in on many, um, criteria, they, those questions are more positive than they have been for years. We just had eight years of a very successful black president. We have a mixed race vice president woman now. Um, you know, the, the races are gaining power. They're gaining numbers, of course. The Latino, I think, are, are now 18% um, of the population of the entire country. And in some states, a lot more, I guess. Yes. Well, um, Probably, we use this figure, undocumented um, immigration. Yeah. Well, if it's undocumented, we have no idea what the numbers are. <laughs> yes, that's true. But good estimates, one by National Public Radio a couple of months ago, was this is probably closer to 20, 23 million people. Yeah. But this is the way America has always mixed. But these issues really do need dealing with. And the danger and the temptation is always to politicize them rather than to deal with them. And that's what we really have to watch out for. I see. Now, John, um, let's turn a little bit to the, the new president and look ahead. What does Joe Biden, in your view, need to do now and by 2024? And can he do it? And what will it take? Well, first, he successfully ran as the anti-Trump, and that worked very well. 
um, where you had a, a divisive revolutionary figure, Biden is the opposite. He's an insider who's a deal maker, a creature of the Senate who knew that you needed to negotiate to get things done. So on, on, in, in terms of style, he's a very different kind of a president. And I think that's absolutely proper in what America needs now. In terms of capabilities, because he's an insider, he's, been, he's moved very quickly to put together a seasoned um, cabinet. His foreign secretary is well-known and um, experienced, and Joe Biden himself is extraordinarily experienced. But he has the problems that every president has. He has to deal with emerging um, financial disparities in the country. He has to deal with um, the... Um, currently very hot topics of race and identity politics, which is difficult for him. And his real difficulty, he's got two, in my view, he's got two real, dif two real difficulties. One, because he's clearly a one-term president. He will have been hemorrhaging power from the day he got in. You say that because of his age, Joe? No, not at all. I mean, I don't think he can imagine running again after this term. And... And, and because most people accept that that's probably true. And I, I wish he wouldn't. I've, I mean, he's taken on a huge burden. Once that happens, once you are a one-term president, you are hemorrhaging power. Now, he, of all people, being a Washington insider, knows this. But it's the problem he has, and he has to work against that and act quickly to have an effect. Because the forces who want to replace him will be working very quickly. The Democratic Party is fractious, as always, but in trouble down. In New York, the, the, mayor of New, the Democratic mayor of New York has told the Democratic governor of New York state to resign. That's one of the most populous states in the union. In California, the Democratic governor is facing a recall petition from the voters. So you have the two of the most populous states in the union, the most powerful Democratic states, seem to be suddenly engaged in losing major figures. So that's a problem for Biden in terms of managing the political process. But he, of all people, knows how to do it because he's been there before. Do you want to turn to foreign policy? Yes, I was just going to say, because I'm just watching the clock, and I just want to make sure we get all of these um, bigger issues in, because I know you have a lot of experience in this area. You spent most of your professional life looking and being closely linked to foreign affairs, international relations. But how do you see the USA's leadership of the free world looking ahead from 2021, its relationship with economic competitors like China, and with other rising economic powers in Asia, not forgetting Europe, Russia, Middle East, NATO? But let's just take the first one, China. China. Well, first, in my view, China is not an enemy, but it's a vigorous competitor and one to be taken seriously. It's very strategic. Historically, it's probably the most successful country in history, having been a major power from all, throughout all history. But I don't think they're an enemy. However, they are an expansive power in that they have this view that the Chinese diaspora, basically around their borders and across the seas, are a part of China. So in terms of our allies and other nations in the region, we need to help protect them. But this is not a discontinuity in our policy. Obama had the same policy. Trump certainly had the same policy. Trump 
did challenge China and politically and in terms of trade and, and created a favorable condition for trade, which Biden can profit from. So I think in terms of China, a managed competition is where it's going to be. We have to be very alert. They play by very different rules than we play by, which are their own rules. And we have to know that and understand that. Okay. But it's a, it's a remarkable country. In one sense, you have the newest um, superpower, America, which is only a couple of hundred years old, and the oldest. And now they're vying for power. It's an intriguing situation. It's a very measured uh, and actually a quite uh, optimistic uh, uh, response, John. Now to Europe or the European Union, to be more precise. How do you think the White House will view the EU politically and economically, both as an ally and as a competitor? Well, certainly uh, in the beginning, as an ally, that, that will always be the case. We have enormous interests in common. We have um, military interests, strategic interests, and we have management issues on, on the peripheries of Europe in turmoil in Turkey, Iran. So we have those interests in common. We don't always agree on how we deal with these problems, and we never have, and we never will. But I, so I see the atmospherics of the relationship with Europe being calmer than during the Trump years, when he challenged the Europeans, for example, to contribute more to NATO and got them to do it. So I, I don't see any real problems, but they, there are always frictions. The Germans have a very different attitude towards the Russians than mainly for energy purposes and historic purposes than uh, the rest of Western Europe and then we do. But so I see business as usual with Europe. Just spend a bit more time talking about NATO, John. I mean, you and I together have had some, some, some contacts with that organization. Tell, us, tell me a little bit more about how you see Trump's posture, his attitude, his actions vis-a-vis -vis NATO and, 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 and the outcome. Well, his attitude was very aggressive and the outcome was very positive because everybody knew, and this is, you know, American presidents have complained about uh, European governments not living up to their spending commitments to NATO for years. Obama made some very strong um, points about this. But in the end, uh, both uh, Obama was a very reassuring figure. Trump was a very unreassuring figure, and he caught their attention. NATO is actually very strong, but America, of course, um, having by far the biggest uh, military component, will always have a very strong say in NATO. Mm -hmm. A problem for NATO is Turkey, which is a, an important member of NATO, the second biggest army in NATO, but is a country riven by all sorts of problems and factions, and it has very insecure borders. John, last question. We have to take Russia seriously, uh, although economically it's underdeveloped, not even in the global top 10 when I looked at the, the list, and with little sign of improvement under Vladimir Putin, but they're at the top table in many global forums and their influence in the Middle East now has to be taken seriously. I think you'd agree with that. And please address uh, these, these peace treaties in the Middle East brokered by the Trump administration. We have to take them seriously too because the region, including Iran, longs for peace. And can the treaties hold? But first of all, talk about Russia and the White House view of Russia, and then let's talk about the Middle East afterwards in these peace treaties. Right. First, the, the basic strategic consideration is that Russia is a power in decline still. 
you know, with the collapse of Soviet Union, it lost half of its land mass and half of its population. Its economy is basically based upon the oil price. So the oil price gets low, Putin has a problem. Um, Trump had a very interesting idea about Russia, which he wasn't able to carry out. He wanted to do a reverse Kissinger. Kissinger went to China as a counterweight to Russia. Trump from the beginning wanted to use Russia as a counterweight to China, but because of the Russia scandal, it was impossible for him to do that. But Russia to a degree is a counterweight to China and we should see it that way. There are talented, um, energetic people who live under a very, very difficult um, regime. As you know, I worked with, with Putin's boss and to a degree Putin in St. Petersburg in the early days. And it's a troubled country, but it will always be a major power by virtue of its geography. It covers 11 time zones. It has more borders than any country in the world. And it's a huge energy um, producer, of course. Turning to the Middle East. Yeah, the Middle East and, and Israel, yeah, please. This is a real success for the Trump administration. He turned the Middle East equation on his head. He got the Israelis to go from saying, um, we will incorporate the West Bank and do these things, um, and we'll do it mildly to the Palestinians if you make peace. He, got, he turned them around and got them to say, we won't do these things, if you give us peace treaties, but not with the Palestinians, but with the Gulf Arabs, which is an astonishing achievement. And it was a result of very hard work and a good deal of luck. But that did something that created a, a coherent block against a real threat from Iranian terrorism and Iranian um, adventurism in the region. That was a huge step forward. Similarly, the fact that under Trump's watch, America became the largest energy producer in the world undercut the importance of the Gulf states in international politics. It, did, it, it removed their leverage and made them more amenable to signing these treaties. So the Middle East situation is quite different now. It will always be complicated and fractious, as you know from your time uh, working with a Middle East consulting company. But it's been a fascinating voyage, that one. And any insights into um, the White House and Israel, in particular, how those treaties were, were engineered, or anything that you uh, have particular insights into, John? How those treaties were engineered? Yeah. Well, again, you know, this shows my judgment is truly poor. <laughs> I, th I thought the president's son-in-law, I thought the president's son-in-law was, was, were closed without an emperor. Um, and he and the president used him to work on the Middle East truce, tre uh, truce uh, treaties. But he had unique capabilities. His family knew Netanyahu uh, 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 very well. Netanyahu used to stay in his house when he was studying in America. Whose family? Who whose family knew Netanyahu? Uh, what? Whose family oh, knew Kushner? Kushner's family, family. Netanyahu, I see. Yeah, and Netanyahu used to stay with them when he was studying in America. So they had a unique connection to him. Many would say too close, but in this instance, it worked quite well. Fascinating. John, 
Thank you so much for answering my question so candidly and so thoughtfully. My guest today has been John Wood, chairman of the Trilateral Group in London and a former global chairman of Republicans Abroad. Thank you, John. Michael, a great pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.